Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we have golf course architect Mike DeVries on the podcast. We did an earlier episode a couple years ago with Mike. Since then, I've played all of his North American golf courses, so I felt like it was time to talk to him since uh, I've seen all his work here, and hopefully I'll go to see Cape Wickham sometime soon. But uh, Mike has designed some some really good golf courses across North America. If you're in the Michigan area, there is a tremendous Mike DeVries golf trip. He's got three courses in the Grand Rapids area. He's got Gray Walls and obviously then Kingsley Club up in Traverse City. Gray Walls is up in the Upper Peninsula. So we talked to Mike about about those projects, what else is uh, going on in his life. And uh, without further ado, here is Mike DeVries. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Well, uh, I'll ask you my favorite, you know, my favorite test question. What's what's your favorite fruit? Ah, let's see. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, probably blueberries. Blueberries. Yeah. I haven't ever gotten that response. Either well, it's either that or uh, maybe black raspberries. Black raspberries. Yeah. I've never even seen a black raspberry. It's like a red raspberry, but it's black. They're really, really dark purple. People probably confuse them for blackberries all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and kind of similar, but they grow in clusters. They're a lot easier to, like, to pick. So, when you're a kid and you're forced to go out and, like, pick fruit with your, you know, with your mom in the summer, because she's going to make jam, which is not a bad thing, but, you know, as a kid, you want to be doing something else. Yeah. Well, when there's black raspberries, you can grab a handful at once. It's a lot better eaten and a lot better war material when you're, you know, there with your brother. <laughs> I imagine life as a black raspberry is uh, is frustrating because they're always confused. Probably yes. Yeah. Very underrated. <laughs> That's not, I haven't ever, I haven't even heard of a black raspberry. I'm gonna have to do some investigating. Now. Um, so you you uh, you've built. I guess everybody likes to talk about municipal and public golf and affordable public golf and. I don't know if there's a, a living architect that's built more affordable and compelling public golf um, with your work here in Michigan. And I, I just, I'm just curious, you know, you've, you've built Kingsley Club also. Uh, you've built Cape Wickham and, you know, world-class golf courses. And Gray Walls, obviously, I think falls in the same bucket. Is there anything that you go about differently when you're building course like say diamond springs from kingsley well certainly i mean you've got to consider getting people around and if it's going to be public play and there's a certain amount of of play going on you've got to be cognizant of you know the flow of that golf course making sure that there aren't some you know unusual bottlenecks and things like that and you can't always predict that Everybody has this formula, you know, you have to start out, you know, you can't have a par three in the first three holes and stuff. Well, there's a lot of great golf courses that blow that out of the door. So that's maybe not necessarily the best golf course. And is, you know, what's your priority and how are you doing that? Uh, 
So I think for me, it's still everything has to be interesting and compelling. That's the first thing. The golf has got to be really good. I mean, you could, you know, make something super cheap, you know, inexpensive to maintain, inexpensive to play, gets people around all the time. But if it's not interesting or there's no intrigue at all on the golfer's part, not many people are going to play it. So then that's a failure. So you still have to keep, for me, you still have to make it interesting. You have to do things that are really, really good from a golf standpoint. And that's that's number one. And then you've got to figure out how to fit that other stuff in. Yeah, that that was something that I was really impressed. We did. I, Will Knights, who worked for the Fried Egg, and I did the the uh, Grand Rapids trio of your courses in that area. And we, I mean, we were we were exhausted uh, going to Diamond Springs. It was our last stop on the way back to Chicago, and I mean, we both like just were all of a sudden infused with energy by the work there. I, I it's one of the courses that's made one of the biggest impacts on me since I started this because of not only the way it's uh, the design of it, but the way it was presented. But something I was enthralled by was the work you did on the flat property that you kind of kick the golf course off on. And, you know, you have those beautiful ravines that you kind of held from people for the, for the longest time and you get through eight and then all of a sudden there's this unbelievable reveal. But those holes one through eight on this flat land was would almost just as you know compelling if not more than than the the holes that play along that ravine which is absolutely stunning and reminded me a ton of shore acres yeah so um well first of all uh, chris shoemaker he 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 deserves a lot of credit because it was his project and after we had worked at pilgrim's run together and he was the superintendent there and kind of the coordinator for all the owners um you know guys that worked for the owner and stuff um, he ended up, you know, finding this other project and wanting to do this and it sort of, you know, evolved into him, um, you know, wanting to co-design and stuff like that. So he deserves a lot of credit, um, cause he was the guy that built it, you know, every day. I wasn't there every day. And, um, so, um, so a lot of the concept, like for instance, because he's a superintendent, he's focused and, and trying to figure out how to. Uh, maintain this golf course and do it on a, on a you know a really tight budget, and to make it simple to maintain but still make it interesting. So the idea of having two cuts of grass, basically three quarters of an inch bluegrass wall to wall, and then bent grass greens, you know, was his and how to carry that concept out. So um, uh, that was something that you know that we worked with, and you know you have to figure out okay. Here's this big wide playing space, and the average golfer, and he can hit it anywhere. Find his ball, really quickly, take it, you know, hit it, move it up, advance, and whatever. The really good player has to figure out exactly where he wants to be to try and attack the hole, you know, or what's you know what that strategy is. So still, you know, building in multiple levels of interest, or playability, or decision making, I think is you know that's what makes compelling golf. And that's what makes it more compelling for more people. So um, the thing that's really cool about Diamond Springs properties, you have all these eskers going across the property in basically an east-west direction. And the clubhouse sits sort of on one of those. So you've got uh, one tee, 
the base of two green, three T, ten T, you know, all these things sort of feature off of one of those, and then they play over and 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 around another one. So um, by utilizing those in different ways as as T spots, green locations, six greens on one of them, um, as a as a hazard to you know drive over, like, like the eight, eight. like on eight, mm -hmm. yeah. So all of that works to be really pretty simple, but in the same breath, it is complex because you're trying to figure out how to best utilize that. So that's a fun that's a fun part of trying to figure out the routing and how things best fit together. Um, but it also makes for you know compelling, simple golf. Yeah, you know I um, I couldn't help when I was when we were playing it that I you know I was like holy cow like the whole time I'm walking around the golf course thinking about, man, this, this place, if you gave it a, a country high-end country club budget, would be absolutely incredible. But then as I thought more and more about it, I, I, I became, you know, the, the way it's presented and maintained is absolutely perfect for, you know, providing affordable and great golf. And, and the more I thought about it, I was like, this is actually doing, this is the best iteration of itself in a way because everybody can go experience it for less than 50 bucks which on you know when you're looking at best values in the country that's one of them and i think obviously chris the way he maintains it is incredible and i think some people misunderstand they go there and they're expecting the the shortcut but it plays so perfectly and you know the single row irrigation the native there was essentially i'm just dropping effusive praise but the native there was what every country club wishes it had its native played like and uh i just i think that place is is one of the you know the best public golf courses in in america for a lot of reasons you know and uh it's it really enthralling golf course um so something there you know and i've seen at a lot of your golf courses i i really love the the greens that you you there are a lot of compelling greens and the idea you have at a lot of golf courses is playing away from the pin to hit it close um talk about that idea and how tough it is to get you know kind of buy-in on that from like the commercial golfer well i think it's um you know if that's the buy-in from the commercial golfer or someone who's going out to play um they may be they're maybe just confused when they fire at the pin and all of a sudden the ball moves away because they didn't, you know, they didn't know or they, you know, hadn't really experienced something like that. But I think multiple plays, you know, over and over, they start to understand that, okay, there's a different way to do it. There's a different option or there's a different opportunity on how to play golf. So that's how golf is in the U.K., right? So, you know, when you're playing Lynx golf, one of those, one of the things there is just you're trying to figure out how to get as close to the hole as possible, and that's going to vary depending on uh, the speed of the ground, you know, the time of year that it is, and and what's happening. So getting the ball there, whenever you watch any old Scotsman, getting the ball to the hole isn't necessarily you know a one-dimensional shot. It's three-dimensional. It's first of all where you hit the ball, how hard the ground is when it hits and then what it does on the ground after that. So there's all these different factors that are involved in that. And we, we can still do that even with our Americanized 
uh, maintenance, you know, sort of expectation and level. But I think what we've got to do is, you know, people just have to be exposed to that. And they have to, like, you know, don't think of it as tricked up. Think of it as, okay, I've got to think about what's the best way for me to get the ball closest to the hole. So when you can do that and when you can emphasize something like that or give people uh, ways of, of doing that, they just have to experience it. You know, they experience it one time. It's like, okay, the second time they get a little bit more. The third time, you want their sort of golf IQ or their experience level to sort of expand every time they play. That's the success to like, you know, the great courses. That's why Marion's fascinating endlessly. You know, all the great courses, Pine Valley, Crystal Downs where I grew up, um, you know, Royal Melbourne, the old course or whatever. Every time it's different. There's something you learn. That's why it's great golf. How can we bring a small part of that just to, you know, to regular, you know, everyday public public golf? Yeah, the uh, it, it what you were just talking about made me think about that passage in the beginning of uh, the Lynx, Robert Hunter's book, where he talks about playing. I can't remember the guy's name. He played with the old you know gritty player that knew all the ways to get the ball close to the hole and he would you know you'd, you'd think you were going to beat him in a match and he'd just hit this ridiculous shot that rolls his way in there um i guess you know one of the things with with golf i feel like the the world of golf is people are trying to see everything and they're not you know and and especially sometimes the way golf courses are are rated in, in rankings is most of these people have only played them one time and, and they're missing out on, you know, that learning process. Does that, uh, you know, frustrate you at all ever? Well, you want them to play your courses more, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, that's just the way that that's, that's the nature of the beast though, I guess, mm -hmm. because some of these places are destined, you know, Cape Wickham's a destination. Yeah. Um, and as remote as it is for someone in the U S it's not remote for someone in Australia because it's a 40-minute flight from Melbourne. So, you know, if you think about it that way, you got four or five, six million golfers there, or, you know, people, and a lot of golfers, so they have a golf culture there. Same thing with Sydney, you know, which is a little further away. But there's a lot of, you know, pretty easy access for people doing that. So, um, now, for the international traveler that goes and, you know, it's a one-off deal, they're going to make one trip to Australia to play golf kind of in their life maybe. Yeah, maybe they're only going to play it one time. Um, they're going to want to play it <laughs> maybe more, you know. Maybe they're going to go there. That's why I always try and tell people too is like, you know, try and spend a night there. Get, you know, because it changes day to day too. The weather changes day to day. You can have a blowy day and you can have like a mildly blowy day. And, but if you're there for two days or three days, you're going to get all different kinds of sort of feels of the golf course just because the weather. And the weather will change from the morning to the afternoon easily. just depends on how it is. And that's kind of the nature of Lynx Golf. You know, squalls come through. The ocean has its own sort of deal. And that, that helps. And that makes it even more variable and more fun. Talk about a little bit, you know, designing with do – you, do you, when you're laying out a golf course, or, or, do you keep that – weather in mind with wind and stuff when you're, you know, putting together, you know, your routing? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you have trend. You have, you know, what's the predominant wind? So, okay, it's a westerly or a southwesterly and, you know, it blows hard, you know, X amount of the time or whatever, you know, some places are different than others. 
So you're always trying to think about that variable, but um, in reality, weather changes. So, so here in Michigan, because of, primarily because of Lake Michigan and the fact of and, you know, what kind of impact that has on our weather, because most of the stuff comes from the west or the southwest. Um, and in the summertime, probably 60% of the weather comes from, the wind comes from the south or the southwest, kind of pushing that way. But when you get to the fall or the springtime, you know, it'll turn around and it comes out of the north and northwest and pushes hard that way. So that's maybe a third of the time, you know, off season. Um, so you have to think about those, those general sort of guidelines. Um, and that's as relevant as something that's right, right on the coast, um, you know, like Crystal Downs versus something that's, that's inland, maybe only 12, 15 miles like Kingsley. Um, or something that's even more interior like the courses in Grand Rapids, which are, you know, 60 miles away from the coast. The routing process is interesting. And, one, you know, one of the courses there in Grand Rapids, the mines, um, obviously it was a situation where you had a lot of obstacles to deal with, road, power lines. Um, in a way, do, do you feel like those – how do you work around big constraints like that and – do you feel like sometimes it, it yields, you know, the famous line of constraint yields creativity? Do you feel like it something you learn something working at, at sites that are a little bit tougher to route right off the bat? Um, well, you, well, you're constantly learning. So, yeah, and constraints do, they come in different, in different ways. So big, huge power you know, lines, I mean, the big, the big things, not just like a regular, big <laughs> and, you know, at the mines, we're thinking, oh, you know, visually, that's so, you know, such a scar on the landscape. But after a while, you sort of become immune to that. It's like, yeah, yeah they're just there, you know, and you kind of deal with it. So is that like looking at the Southern Ocean or, you know, the Bass Strait? It, no, it's not the same thing, right? But, um, but those, you know, you, you just figure out that, okay, I've got to work around those. And that's like a no, you know, no zone. I mean, we could have put holes underneath those lines and connected the sections of the property a little bit better because there's kind of four sections, three for the main golf course, and then there's another another section down near the range for a future par three, hopefully. Um, but those are things that, you know, I talked with the owner about, you know, hey, do we want to have that? And she's like, no, because we don't really – that's our land, but we don't really totally control it because the right of way and they have to have access and stuff. So we didn't, we didn't utilize that part of the property. You know, we just pass under it, which is kind of a problem because you sort of go from one section and then you, you know, have this big long walk or cart ride and then you go to another section and you got to come back through. So, um, that's not perfect. It's not ideal. Um, but you just, you try and figure out a way to do that. And then, um, utilize those sorts of things to maybe give you a different, different feel or a different section. It's kind of you know it's an interesting start because you, you're on one side of the road, going this tunnel over and you play four holes, four par fours, you know back and forth they're parallel, but the land is moving and changing and doing all this stuff, and then you got to cross the road again. So it's kind of disjointed, but at the same token it works. Um, and having four par fours to start works also just from the stand that they're all really different and they have different sort of things that you have to deal with. So the first holes, um, you know, sort of semi-blind tee shot, but then you have this kind of cool downhill 
um, you know, look at the green that sits across this this gully. No, no bunkers. Second hole's kind of a big up and over par three. The third hole's like a really difficult green to hit, maybe too hard. <laughs> and the fourth is like this short, drivable par four, um, you know, with a pretty good sized green, but like a big valley in front of it. So a lot of guys can drive the green, but, um, you know, it's a compelling kind of second shot too, where you have a half wedge in your hand and you're hitting uphill and, you, you know, semi-blind if you're yeah. down below it it's, absolutely it's a, it's a yeah. neat hole that's yeah the, the that opening stretch really makes you go wow and i mean it, it, that that's another great affordable golf course it's funny i had a buddy who really got the golf bug this summer he's not you know a beginner beginning golfer not like a you know somebody that's and he was he works in grand rapids you know he has his headquarters there but he lives in chicago so he goes up to grand rapids a ton um and he was telling me oh i'm playing this course i'm like hey you should go check out the mines next time i saw him he's like that place is unbelievable and he's like and it's only like 10 bucks more than the place i was playing and it it was just it was just a cool moment to have you know where he doesn't know why he likes the mines more than the other course he was playing but he knows there's something different about it and uh i think that's one of the neat things with architecture even if people can't articulate it a lot of times they can they can under they understand it at a, at a you know a core level um, when they see something different. So and he's a real beginning golfer. Yeah. I mean, just kind of started playing, you know, picking the game up, which is cool. Which is neat to hear that you know, wow, I don't really understand why I like this, but this is more compelling, you know. And maybe it's because of the land because there are some cool landscapes and some wild stuff there, but at the same token. Um, you know, 10 bucks is 10 bucks, right? So <laughs> if he's just trying to learn the game, that's cool that he's turned on by something like that. I mean, to me, that's like a super high compliment. That's that's fun to see that happen. Yeah, it's funny. He, he like, you know, I, I must have told him that midsummer because he was like, ah, I've played the mines like 15 times. When he, uh, next time I saw him, I was like, well, you should try. He's like, that one's a little too far away. But it's, uh, you know, the... It, it is an intro from my perspective too. I love, you know, cause you, you listen to him talk about it and it's, it's a different perspective than I would have, you know, but it is, uh, you know, a ringing endorsement being, and that's what you're kind of looking for. So with, um, growing up at Crystal Downs and having seen a lot of your work and now seeing a lot of Maxwell's work, it's, it's very evident that you the influence that Perry Maxwell had on your, on your, like just talking about the first four holes at, uh, at the mines, it reminds me a lot of some of Maxwell's holes and how they kind of drape over the land and the, the blindness of the first shot and the way. It, and then obviously when you look at the greens, um, I'd love, you know, you consulted for years at McKenzie's, uh, course metal club. And then you grew up working grounds at, at Perry Maxwell, uh, Perry Maxwell McKenzie's, uh, crystal downs. Can you contrast the difference between the McKenzie courses that Maxwell was, you know, essentially the construction foreman and those with Hunter? Yeah, so the um, it's a real well, it's a it's a small subset because it's really Crystal Downs and the University of Michigan Golf Course where Maxwell was really more involved. I mean, he may have done some other stuff, but that was the that was sort of the major impact. Um, so the bunkering style is a little bit different. Um, the use of like 
you know, donut holes, which you see in like some other Maxwell stuff, you know, in donut bunkers, you see that. Um, so that's a little bit different as far as how um, they do that stuff. I think um, he also, uh, you know, he's known for his severe greens and stuff that he did when he did renovation work. You know, he built heavily contoured greens and, you know, we weren't talking about stimping at X, Y, or Z and things like that. But the things that's interesting about that also is that um, we talk about speed a lot, and we we assign this stint meter reading to them. Um, we're just capable of of manicuring grass to to you know such a fine fine margin of error that that's really different than it was eighty or a hundred years ago. But downhill down grain on one of those old greens was super fast. It was thirteen or fifteen on the stint meter, and going uphill was like three. So there was a there was a lot more variability. And you had to kind of figure that kind of stuff out too. That's local knowledge. That's like knowing where to miss on the green because if I'm going downhill, I have no chance, right? So I think um, um, and Meadow Club being the first thing that they did in America that Mackenzie did in America. And that was kind of hit the beginning of his evolution with Robert Hunter. Um, you know, I think Mackenzie was in, you know, he was around more. He was more involved with the stuff in California because he was nearby um, than, say, at, you know, the stuff here in Michigan with, um, with Maxwell. So Maxwell maybe, you know, he's executing or carrying out certain things um, with less direction or less direct injection maybe from from Mackenzie but um I think um Robert Hunter also had um you know less experience you know he wasn't Maxwell was already doing stuff so he was already involved and he was sort of already dabbling in it and that's how he got got involved with with um with Alistair um and Hunter's deal was um you know it was more of this sideline and stuff like that so I, I don't know, I don't know enough about Robert Hunter and how directly, you know, he was implementing or, or, you know, personally like executing certain things. So that's a little bit um, different. Whereas like Maxwell was the guy on the ground every day. Like he came to Michigan for three summers. Um, the first year in '29, they built the front nine. Then the crash hit, and then it took a couple you know, a couple more summers to build it just because of lack of labor funds. It's, I mean, it's a miracle they got it done. Now there's also a rumor that, you know, he had a girlfriend up here because he was widowed. <laughs> so, so, you know, maybe that was the incentive to come back for a couple more years. <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> and a, there's a similar story with Tillinghast and Minneapolis. Like why Tillinghast got to Minneapolis a few times and it's it because he had either a, a mistress or a, or a, a girlfriend there. I don't remember the exact story, but I never I never heard about that about Tilly. So yeah, yeah. So, but that's why there's a few courses in Minneapolis that are Tillinghast or Minnesota in general because he had you know somebody that he was going to visit there all the time. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about uh, of U U of M's course. I uh, I got to see that this summer and and kind of what's there now and 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 some stuff that stands out in terms of, of, of what it could be? Uh, well, again, it's a, a phenomenal set of greens. Really, really good greens. Um, 
they're all a little bit smaller than well with the exception of 10 but 10's expanded in a section where it wasn't um so they're all a little bit smaller than they were originally and some significantly smaller than they were so they've lost a lot of that green and and hopefully we're going to be able to restore that i did the plan in 2011 or 12 or something like that um and we need a donor so anybody that's a big u of m fan and wants to donate um <laughs> it seems like donors want to put their name on buildings not necessarily you know for the golf course so um so we need that um and that hopefully that's going to happen and it's going to be committed but the greens are really exceptional uh the ground is also a really interesting piece of land so you have this high point in the middle of the property sort of low at the clubhouse where it's at and then low at other portions where it goes down and then goes back up. So a thing that Mackenzie always did was that he worked around those landforms and he built things. Valley Club's like one of the best examples of that, one of the greatest routings here. You play one and two, you cross the road, and then on that stretch of three through 11, you've got two knobs, and like each knob affects four or five holes. You know, it's a it's an amazing structure with how that works. Three greens at the base of a hill, four tees on that hill, five passes by that hill, seven green comes back to the base of that hill, eight is tees off from one hill to the next hill, and then ten comes by and finishes on that afterwards too. So that one hill has three greens around it, three sets of tees. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's yeah. just one little simple knob, and everything else is kind of flat. So, and... He did a lot of that at the University of Michigan, too, where he came off of the central spine. So the 10th tenth, tenth hole goes up, um, the green's up there, uh, 7T, 18T, 17 green, um, 6 green just on the other side, 11 green. So all of these things, those are all within one little section. Um, and then off of the spine, kind of draped down from that, you actually still have, you have 4T, 3 green, um, eight green and ninety. So it's pretty impressive how you know you work off of that. It's it's the simple basics. I mean, just trying to do that and figuring out how to do that. But he did that better than most people. And um, and Maxwell did a great job of you know of executing and doing that. What are some examples of your own work where you've taken that type of principle of of you know repeatedly using a a, a feature that you liked on on one of your sites? Uh, well, Kingsley's a pretty good example of that because, like, when you lead out and you go to, you know, you, to get to that South 40, which is like holes two through seven T, um, that area there, you know, is really strong in itself and trying to, trying to figure out how that worked best. Um, but to get to that, that spine that's two green, um, or two T, six T, but then, that goes across and goes further further to the east, and that's, you know, two green, um, four green, three and three and five combination T and stuff. So how that sort of thing fits in and sort of divides the front nine, you know, from the first hole and then the south 40 and the split coming down. So those types of things um, recurring and going to that, that, that stuff's really important. Um, same thing kind of at, at the thing about Diamond Springs, where you use these eskers to like feed off of and play onto those particular things. So one goes out, two comes back, greens at the base of that esker right near the clubhouse, which is a nice return 
you know, if you have a private club and, you know, you just got to play a couple more holes or you're just going out, you know, it's, it's nice to have little return routes that somehow fit back and come back to the clubhouse. It's a public golf so not maybe the same thing. But then the third tee's right on that or the tenth tee. So you could literally play one, two, and then just skip to ten if you wanted to, you know, not play three through, you know, eight or whatever, or three through seven because kind of ten, you could play down ten and you could play eight. You could go. I mean, there's different ways of doing that. So places that have different multiple routings where you can do certain things, I think that's, um, you know, that's a complexity that you can add in or you can figure out. It's like we were talking about with Mar- the old course at Marquette um, earlier today in that um, the original nine holes there is intermixed with the, with the holes that were added in the mid-60s. So, but we could go back to the original routing of the front nine and we could have the, you know, we could have the Langford holes for one set and then have the old, the, the newer nine, well, 50 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <It's newer. laughs> um, so we could, we could separate those and then keep them, or we could keep them intermixed kind of like they are. So it's, it's interesting to be able to try and do that. Yeah, it's... Uh when you're when you're routing a course, I mean, I assume that, and tell me if I'm wrong. You're thinking about like the cadence of a of a routing, you know, where where things kind of fall with relation to other holes and and such. And I'm say say somebody just rerouted your course where you have multiple ways you could route it. Would that kind of is there a story that kind of changes if somebody said just jumbled up your routing and you know changed the order of holes? Uh, in which you play them? Oh, absolutely it does. It affects that a lot. So um, I'm always trying to think about how that cadence works from a human scale, human standpoint, and walking the golf course. So even if a golf, even if most people take a golf cart, you've got to think about how that flows from you know someone walking and experiencing the game that way. And the interesting thing about that is um, – a couple summers ago, I had some guys that came up, and these are young, fit, you know, 30s. These guys go to the gym, they train, they do all this, and they take a golf cart every time they play golf. So one of the guys is a really good golfer, and he's, you know, he's going to walk with me, right? And um, um, this other guy, he's like, oh, yeah, it takes And we're kind of like, you know, his his friend started like, come on, you know, walk with us, man, you know, check it out. And he's like, sort of finally badgered him into walking, right? And after that day, my friend would tell me, he'd, he's like, yeah, guess what? He walks all the time now. He's like, you can't believe how good that is. <laughs> so it's like, you know, he was, he was experiencing something in a different way that he just hadn't been exposed to. So I think from the standpoint of when you're designing or you're figuring out the route, you have to figure out how that cadence works because that's going to flow better. And I think, you know, there are a lot of golf courses where you have restrictions, whether it's a mountain course and there's so much elevation that you're going to take a golf cart. Um, but those things tend to get disjointed too because, oh, I got a big cart ride or I'm going through development. And you may have really a really good collection of holes, but not might, might not be a really good golf course. You know, it's just sort of these separate individual kinds of things. Now, you could say that about the mines too, where we're divided up into these sections where you play a group of holes and then you got to have a big walk, you know, cause we're restricted by the power line or the road or something like that. So you try and figure out a way to make those things kind of work together 
or make that return a little more reasonable. So there you play one through four. You go by the clubhouse again. Hey, grab a, grab a drink or a hot dog or something like that. And then, you know, you go out to the back nine. Um, you get to, you know, you play four holes. Then you play five holes. You finish at the clubhouse again. Then you go and you play the back nine. And you've got a break there where you got to go through after 11 and after 17 to cross the power lines. Um, not ideal, but, um, you know, that it's, you know, we sort of were stuck with that. So that's what we got to deal with. Yeah. That's a, you know, inherited problem with just having power lines. (laughs) In that case, as I remember, the walk out is a little bit more taxing than the walk back. Is that a way that you kind of mitigated the, the, the two walks? From going by the power lines. Well, it just happens to be how, kind of how they fit. Yeah, because you're kind of you're more downhill coming back. Um, yeah, and there wasn't a, it wasn't an easy. You had to sort of get to that point to sort of start the routing of the other holes, twelve through seventeen, and um, that you know. But when you get there, though, even though it's a taxing walk, you kind of like, wow, that's a cool hole because you're standing on this hill. And you're looking down at 12, and you know you sort of got a little glimpse of of 17 when you were kind of coming up. Um, there's some trees between them there, but you know you get a sense of wow, okay, this is this is worth it, right? This is neat. And then you get down to the green, and it's like wow, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a cool stretch of holes on that back yeah. part of the property. Yeah, um, it's funny what you talked about golf and uh, and walking, and I've got a lot of college buddies that got into the game in the last three or four years and you know it, it's funny how you know they play with me and I walk and and sure enough like they all walk now because it, and it, I think it's almost like walking comes from like how you get introduced to the game in a way and it or like experiences where like you alluded to at Kingley where somebody just saw his friend walking and you walking and then they they also started walking and I think that's like really the you know when you talk about people walking more it's just a matter of someone in their peer group walking yeah I, and you know i grew up taking a golf cart you know i mean i walked i mean by myself when i was playing like the little nine hole course but when i went with my grandparents you know they were in a golf cart so we're playing crystal downs which is not a easy walk i mean there's a lot of elevation things like that but we were always in a golf cart and we didn't have caddies when i worked in the pro shop you know, it was basically caddies were gone, carts are in, and there were four guys that walked the golf course. They were all like eighty years old. <laughs> it was just one foursome, <laughs> and they would come out and they'd they'd pull the trolley, or I think one of them carried their bag, and um, sometimes they'd walk the front and then ride the back or something like that. But they were the only guys that walked the golf course. And now we got a lot of people that walk the golf course, and we have a good caddy program and stuff. And my son, who's worked in the bag room and caddied and stuff. When he goes out, and they, you know they can grab a cart and you know speed around and do whatever they want, but he walks, and um, and his buddies like walking. You know they enjoy it. They like the camaraderie that you get with that too. When you're in a golf cart, you're kind of speeding to the next thing. You're only talking to the guy in the cart, and then you kind of meet at the greens and the tees with the others in your group. But if you're walking along, you know, and you know, two of you hit to the right and two of you hit to the left. You know, and maybe it's switched different different guys doing that. You get to like sort of experience and talk about it. And golf's a social game, so you know it makes it more enjoyable that way too. I think. Yeah, there's such a greater sense of you know playing with your 
you know, the guys in your group when you're when you're walking together that that you diverge less in that situation than rather you know the just the guy that you're riding with in the cart. Um, and it's it, it's also you know walking is also is also really fast because you're going to your ball and you're playing your ball and you're moving on. Whereas when you're in the cart, a lot of times guys are like. You know, they drive over the thing, then they wait for the other guy. They don't, like, leave their guy there and then go to their ball and hit and come back. So, you know, you can play just as fast unless you have these super long walks between, um, you know, greens and tees. So it's actually very efficient, too. Something that stands out to me with with uh, the cor- the courses that you've uh, built in Michigan is, is the, the superintendents that – work at him like craig moore who is on the podcast i mean total golf nut how how much goes into you know the present from that sense have you had experiences where you know a superintendent maybe less golf inclined than say craig gets you know the playing conditions like the surfaces and the way it's presented is is drastically different than say craig at at gray walls where you know, you can tell he plays a ton of golf because of the way it's presented around and on the greens and, and what he thinks about when he talks about the golf course. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there there is a difference. Guys that play golf or, you know, grew up playing golf and love golf, there's a different way that they sort of look at it. I guess I've you know, I'm building the golf courses, you know, with these guys, and hopefully they're on board, like, you know, early on. So, in Craig's instance, when we were building Kingsley, he was one of Dan's assistants, and he'd worked with Dan before, and so he was groomed, you know, kind of into that, and we were building the golf course and stuff, so he saw that process. And when we built Gray Walls, he was um, he was there taking care of the old course while we were building it, because the superintendent um, was kind of the project manager on that one. So, um, and then he went back downstate and was maintaining a golf course there. And a couple of years later, Pete, who was the superintendent that built gray walls with us left and they hired Craig, which was perfect for me because, you know, he knew exactly what was going on and he knew how to dial things in. Um, he's a great turf manager and stuff like that. So I think part of that has to do with, the experience that they have, maybe if they're involved in the project early on, so they're getting they're getting exposure to what we want to do, how we want to do it, and why. And they have a lot of input into that, too. I mean, I'm always asking a lot of questions to them. You know, hey, I want to do this. How are you going to maintain that? And they're like, well, you know, if a guy just says no, I can't do that, he's probably not the right guy for the job. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's someone who's trying to um, figure out a way to do it and say, yeah, we could do that, but we got to do this, then, um, yeah, we can do that. You know, he's he's trying to figure out a way to do that. great example of that is when we were doing Kingsley, the 17th hole, which, you know, has this huge drop-off from the ridge and the, and the landing area down in this valley. It's about 60 or 65 feet down this hill. Great sledding hill, by the way. I bet, I bet 18, 18 at Gray Walls is probably a good sledding hill, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was an old gas line going. It was full, mature, old forest that hadn't been cut. And there was a gas line and a trail that went through there. And so you could see this hillside. And, and I walked through there with Dan, and I said, you know, 
can you maintain this? And he says, you mean like for a fairway? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, with four-wheel drive, I can do that. But I'm going to have four-wheel drive because of all the other crazy stuff you're building. So that's okay. We can do it. <laughs> so there you go. There's a solution, right? Uh-huh. You just have to figure out a way to do it. Uh, talk about the uh, the challenges of, of routing courses that are like heavily wooded, where you can't, when you walk around, you're looking at dense forest rather than, you know, an open prairie setting. Uh, well, we, you know, we have topo maps and things, and so I'm really good looking at squiggly lines, so that helps. But it's always, there's always, no matter how good the topo maps are, there's always stuff in the ground that, um, so Kingsley was, uh, it had been clear cut like 15, 20 years before we were there, so it was a thicket. I mean, it was, it was tight in a brush, I mean, it was impenetrable, you couldn't get through it. Versus if you have like a full mature, like that section on 17 was an old forest that hadn't been cut, you can see, you know, kind of what's going on underneath because, you know, at that point, if you have mature trees, you have high high branches and you don't really have a lot of low brush. So it's a difference in trying to look at stuff. Um, gray walls was fully forested. Um, you know, some big, you know, a lot of big old trees and things like that. And then there's all these rock outcroppings and crazy stuff. Um, so, um, you know, there we, um, similar sort of thing, trying to figure out, you know, we got up to kind of where the 17th green was, which is this really crazy wild green. And there's this, there's this valley that's left of the green. And that was kind of a bunch of hemlock trees up there which are pretty dense and they they maintain their lower branches a lot of times and i was getting really excited looking at this thing and pete the superintendent was like what do you what do you say i'm like see that that's going to be really cool next to the green he's like i don't know i have any idea what you're talking about (laughs) but then when it got built he goes oh now i see what you were saying and so um part of that sort of recognizing things finding things in the field so you use the you use a topo map, you spend a lot of time on the ground, and then you you try and you know piece all that stuff together and figure out the best way for it to work. Um, with with you alluded to like sometimes the topo maps that doesn't have everything. Is there an instance where you you say clear cut trees and you found something that just made the whole infinitely better that wasn't on a topo map? Uh, yeah, so at Kingsley, the 13th green, which is the big, crazy, you know, short par four with this huge green, the original concept for that was it was going to be in the bowl and behind the bowl that's left of the green was going to be on that ridge there. It was going to, and that ridge was, you know, that, that came up in the topo. I mean, we knew there was a bowl and we knew there was this ridge, but it was a thicket. It had been clear cut and it was really dense and, um, so I was just clearing where the green is. I was just clearing the brush off there, and all of a sudden there was a lot more micro stuff in there. So you just you're not seeing a lot of times, depending on how dense the foliage is, and when they shoot it. Um, a lot of times they can't, you know. There's the general landform, but you can't see the micro stuff. And so I'm like, hmm, wow, this is really cool. So. You know, I did a little manipulation there, but not very much at all. I mean, that green, you know, with the big dip in the middle, the dip was there, you know, the back shelf was there, and, you know, we added little things in to make it, you know, to put in these little, you know, pin locations and things like that. But I didn't I didn't know it was that complex or that intricate, and 
basically after clearing it, I was like, wow, that's that's just all green. We just got to do that. It's totally anti short par four. You know, you're supposed to have a small green, a little target. It's like we're going to have this huge green, but they're going to be small targets within the green. And so that works and, you know, makes it, you know, highly variable every day, which is cool. Yeah. Um, it's And it was like a improvisation in the field. Have you ever run into an instance where, you know, you I'm assuming you kind of this is the plan and you've had pushback from a owner on are implementing, you know, uh, making a change to the, you know, plan that they've agreed to because you saw something in the field like that situation. Um, yeah, pro- I, I'm, I'm sure there have, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information that goes back and forth, mm-hmm. but I, um, you know, owners, you know, it's their baby too, right? It's yeah. not just my baby. So they certainly have a lot of input. And I think that's just a communication thing. That's just talking to them about, you know, hey, I'm seeing this. This this doesn't seem to, you know, work. And, you know, I want to try and, you know, massage or manipulate this. And you kind of work through that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, owners have certain things that they want to see. And, you know, it's our it's our job to try and, you know, achieve that and to give them all these things that they want and then also make it, you know, do all the stuff that we want it to do, right? Um, or something that might, you know, that we feel might make it better, or, you know, more in, more interesting, et cetera. So, um, yeah, you have, you know, there's little things here and there, but I, I got to say, I mean, the owners I've had have been great. You know, they've been super people to work with, and um, a lot of them are, you know, very good friends, you know, and people that, you know, that I talk to on a regular basis. So, um, you know, there's that side of it too, you know, and they, you know, you build trust too, just like anything else, you know, they probably, most, most owners have not been through the process ever before. So, you know, they don't really know what to expect. And you know, when, you, when you start like blitzing trees left and right, um, you know, they're kind of like freaked out in some ways. And you got to be like, you know, okay, well, we've got to open this up. We've got to have room to play. We have to have sunlight for grass. You know, there's all these different things that you have to do. Um, in the case of number one at, at uh, Gray Walls, uh, they thought, well, we're going to have a tree-lined, you know, northern Michigan typical golf course, right? That's what we want. Because their, their other golf course is kind of wide open. You know, it's pretty gentle. There's a lot of movement and there's a lot of cool stuff on the old Langford. Um that I think that they didn't necessarily appreciate as much as maybe they are getting to now. Um, but we're standing up on that big hill and I started clearing all the trees to the right of the tee because I know Lake Superior is right there and it's, you know, it's a couple miles away, but the view is 55 miles all the way to pictured rocks. And they're like, Oh, you're cutting way too much. I'm like, we just got started. Come back tomorrow. And then they, they came back like a day or two later and they said, okay, we'll shut up now. <laughs> you know, it was a couple of guys on the board and they're really good guys and stuff, but they're like, okay, we, we, we have no idea what we're talking about. Just do your job. <laughs> it's, it's, that's funny. There's a similar story. Uh, Trey Kemp who redesigned this Stevens park down in Dallas. He, uh, he cut down a bunch of trees and, and the condo owners behind this tee box were like outraged. 
and he was like, just just hold on. And he opened up this view of like the Dallas skyline. And it's so funny because he was he was telling me he's like, yeah, and their property value went up a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and he's like, needless to say, they thank me later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks very much. Here's a bonus, <laughs> exactly. another forty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny how like you know there there are these it, that was an ex- example of an unintended consequence. Like you know they didn't know what was going to happen, and now they're they're sitting on you know way more valuable property. That um it it. it Talk about, you know, with Graywall's that dramatic land, you know, versus a more subtle property, what, what the, you know, what dramatic land allows you to do, like the pros and cons versus a more subtle property where like, you know, Diamond Springs with the, with the, with the small kind of ridges that you were routed over versus, you know, large scale movement. Well, Graywalls has a lot of both, but um, it's um, there's a lot of restrictions at Graywalls too because you know we got granite rock walls and it's like we don't have a blasting budget. You know we're not going to spend millions of dollars like creating holes out of nothing. So you know those are sort of hard edges or restrictions and things like that. Just like at Diamond Springs, even though the ground is relatively flat and subtle, you know there's the big gorge where the creek's going and um the old mill air- pond area that um that ravine you know that's a def- hard edge can't do anything in there you know we we can't get down there and adjust it or do anything so how do you work over how do you take that and make that an advantage something that you can utilize and make interesting and provide impact and it does it provides a lot of you know at the end of the round, you're like, wow, saw that at nine. And then like you go away from it again. Then you come back 14 through 18, and it's like, wow, you know, pretty cool for a $30 golf course, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, at Gray Walls, then you've got, yeah, you've got a lot of elevation change, 200 feet of elevation change on the property, and you've got these super hard ridges, vertical type stuff that you have to deal with. So – that's um, something that you have to factor in and say, okay, here's a hard edge. How does something fit into that? And then you have to figure out kind of how to how to make that work. And I'd been working on the routing and trying to figure things out, and there were certain holes that I saw and stuff like that. And um, it kind of – it basically kind of clicked. Um, Fred Muller, who was the old pro at Crystal Downs and stuff, and we were up there, and we were going. We were driving back. We'd been up there for a few days, and um, we were driving back. Fred was driving, and I was in the car, and I was like doodling, trying to figure out this section of the property, and it kind of clicked. And that was like the majority of the routing. It's like made it work. It made it fit together. Um, so sometimes, you know, it, it takes something like that, where you know, one little piece of the puzzle makes the thing work, or you know, if we do this. If we impact that, you know, that makes the other stuff. And trying to figure out those, you know, sometimes it's one little piece. You know, where's that piece? <laughs> the thousand, thousand, thousand piece puzzle and like, you know, where's that one piece? What piece uh, was that? Uh, I can't remember right now. <laughs> I know exactly. I don't know. I mean, it's probably, I'm not saying that it was one piece there, but trying to get everything to jive, you know, where you're trying to make this corner work so in some like um 
one of the hard things there is that we're on this big high piece and we go down and then we play, you know, basically one, two, three, four, kind of on a level. We got to get back to that middle ridge when we got to get up and we got to figure out how to do that. And we got a property boundary edge over where number hole number five is. And there was no property boundary line staked in the field or um, on the map. And I was told, oh, no, you got like another 100, 150 feet over there. I'm like, I don't think so. Because I was thinking, <laughs> I was looking at the map and, and thinking that, you know, I'm pretty close to the edge here. And we were trying to figure out how to get to that corner. And four could have been a five or it could have, it could have been the four that it is now. Um, and so, um, it ended up being a four and having sort of this jog back to the tee and then this, you know, short par four that went up to the green with the big rock wall and all that. Um, I would have preferred that that tee was over another hundred, 150 feet, but that's not our property. Our property line's pretty much right there. So, but we still had to figure out how to do that. And, um, in that kind of, you know, it sort of worked if. I figured out a way for it to work, but it's to me it's it's the most awkward drive there because you know, you got to hit it up so you know so high and that's difficult for a lot of golfers. Um, but it's still like super exciting and fun. And some people are like, "That's my favorite hole," you know. And it's pretty iconic when you got this sixty foot granite wall right next to the green, and um, you know there's full white pine trees growing on top of that, and you know agronomically. Figuring out we could actually grow grass there yeah. was important because there's a lot of airflow and it gets morning sun and late sun and the gap works to where it you know functions because you'd think this that granite cliff is wall is on the southwest side and you're thinking how are you going to grow grass because yeah. it's going to be in shadow, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it does work. Yeah. So it's uh yeah that. Is a thrilling stretch. It's uh, well, the uh, that place everybody should go see. But um, we uh, we kind of wrap this here, and we appreciate the time, and uh, we'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing more of your work here. I gotta get down to Australia, and then I'll have I'll see all the original stuff, and uh, gotta get there. I know. Gotta get there. Maybe maybe it's this a summer. trek. Yeah. It's a trek, yeah, maybe this from summer. America, but it's worth it. I know. It's, <laughs> I just got to get on a plane. That's a, <laughs> it's a so. month long journey. You just you know do it. You hit Australia. You hit you know hit New Zealand. <laughs> just think of all the podcasts you can do from down there. I know. That's well. <laughs> it's, it's in the cards. We'll see if I get down there. So, all right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.